Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Amity Schley. She is a widely published columnist and commentator, author of one of the better known political biographies of recent times entitled The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and the, the, the second one is Coolidge. Uh, she chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She's the editor and introducer of a new edition of the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge, which is our main subject today. Welcome, Ms. Schles. Glad to be with you. Uh, first, the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. What, what is that? What, what, what does the Coolidge Foundation do? The Coolidge Foundation is dedicated to the memory and principles of Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president, a very underrated president. If Coolidge were a stock, he'd be a buy. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he has so much to offer America. So we are based in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, which is where Coolidge came from, a beautiful historic village uh, preserved. You can see his grave, humble, and his birthplace. And we have an office in Washington as well, Coolidge House, so uh, we can be there for Americans who are traveling and want to learn about Calvin Coolidge and for schools if they come through Washington. One thing the Coolidge Foundation does, our signature effort, is a scholarship, the Coolidge Scholarship, which is a full ride for academic merit to any college. And this is very important in an era when all we talk about is other criteria for college success. An admission. This scholarship honors the achievement of high schoolers, and we have 4,700 candidates this year for three scholarships, to give wow. you an idea. And then we try to serve as many of those kids as possible, even the, uh, the ones who don't win. So we have a senator's program for the top 100. And generally speaking, you don't have to be an academic superstar. We are here for you if you are interested in Coolidge and his values. We have volunteer programs for kids and debate programs as well. So it's an educational source about Coolidge, but also his values, which are traditional, frugal, uh, classically liberal, um, like some of your show. Always polite. Coolidge was civil. Um, and it's a bit of an alternate world for uh, people who are seeking to return to more common sense America, that's Coolidge. Let me actually give a, a reference for our listeners. If you want to see more about the Coolidge Presidential Foolidge. Foundation, the, the, the website is very simple. It's CoolidgeFoundation.org. So the thing you said a few moments ago about the underrated nature of 
President Coolidge. The other words uh, that you hear about him, well, as, as, you, uh, as, you, as you've written about, forgotten, overlooked. Uh, why, why is Coolidge underrated? Is it, is it, I think you imply in your introduction that, you know, we did have the long reign of FDR. Did that, did that sort of eclipse the 20s, uh, the Depression eclipsed the 20s, FDR eclipsed the memory of President Coolidge? Well, yes, it's a shame, but you think about the way we think about presidents. It's like athletes. So if it's a zero-sum game, they're ranked, right? Hmm. And if you want to rank FDR high, which people do for a number of reasons, principally because he was an awesome naval president who led us to victory and saved the world in World War II, few can uh, dispute that, then you have to rank someone else low. And Coolidge is very different from Roosevelt, both Roosevelts, in fact. So one high, one low. It's that awful forcing that happens with rankings. And I, I, I kind of rail against that because presidents are not athletes. This is not a guild. It's not a league. If one is up, one doesn't have to be down. And that's part of it, though. War presidents tend to be high-ranked. Mm-hmm. Think of Lincoln without the Civil War. <laughs> Would he yeah. have the rank he did? Because he achieved something through the Civil War, and Roosevelt achieved something through World War II. Okay. But we also need leaders in peacetime. They're not commanders-in-chief, optimally. They're just chief executives. It's less glorious, and it has to do also with our passion for superlative marketing greatness and uh, powerful leaders that makes us not focus on Coolidge, which is a shame because his, he was an incredible, disciplined, achieving leader. tend to say we should judge presidents by what they promise to do <laughs> and not our own standards, but what they promised to do. Coolidge and Harding before him, for that matter, promised to dramatically cut taxes. They did. They promised to reduce federal spending, they did. They actually, and this is Coolidge is interesting, they actually, he actually cut the budget. And if you say that to a congressman today or on television, people say, you mean he reduced the increase? <laughs> the rate, that, that's what's called a cut, uh, uh, what passes yeah. for a cut. He says, no, Coolidge actually cut the budget. Nominal, he cut the budget. Um, very tough to do with the population growing, the economy growing, we're feeling prosperous. We like to spend. He actually did that. And he, and he had, I'm not sure if we wrote this in the introduction, my co-author and I, Matt Denhart, but Coolidge had twin lion cubs, twin lion cubs, and he named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. You did, you Budget, did uh, and, <laughs> and he could sort of imagine Coolidge sliding steak across the floor, feeding him even Steven, <laughs> Budget Bureau Tax Reduction. And why did he do that? Because he wanted to show he was absolutely committed to curtailing the budget even as he cut taxes. A little different from Ronald Reagan. Very, very interesting. And he managed it. So they had surpluses. The debt went down. The federal debt uh, went down by one-third in that period. So we're interested in this. Pretty soon we'll have to cut budgets or something. And here he is a model hidden from view. That's why this book is so important. Yeah. And we're going to blame Coolidge a little bit for that underrated nature because he, he just, he, he didn't like hero worship. 
especially of politicians, right? He, he discouraged the, the elevation of him beyond what, what he considered sort of the, 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 uh, uh, the proper statesman's role. Absolutely. In fact, in this book, which Coolidge wrote for children or for parents to give to their children, he has a statement. He says it's a safety for the country for the president to know the president is not a great man. Coolidge didn't like Nietzsche, it's safe to say, right? He, did, he didn't <laughs> like, um, I'm, I'm being uh, anachronistic and odd, but if you know what I mean, he didn't get into that great man theory. He didn't fall down and die. What a leader. He liked institutions and men were there to serve institutions. And he, he walked that walk. He had an opportunity to run for president in 1928. And since he had been elected only once and rather uh, resoundingly in 1924, the Republican Party thought he ought to run, right? Of course he ought to run. He had big coattails, but he chose not to run. And it's pretty clear from this autobiography why. He wanted to be like George Washington and go back to the plow. He thought it was better for the American people for leadership to change from time to time. And the listener will forgive my paraphrase, but you can get the exact quote in this book, which, by the way, is a picture of Coolidge throwing out a baseball on the cover. He could be really happy, and that's one thing that's not known about him as well. I'm going to give the full quote that you you, you said a part of. What what Coolidge said, it is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to to the country for him to know that he is not a great man. Now, uh, one one question I would have today, if we look at the the size of of Leviathan, is that modesty just impossible for a president today? I mean, is the federal government, he's, he's in charge of so much. The federal government is so big and it reaches out into the country in a way that would have been inconceivable to Coolidge. How, how does a leader, I'm asking you to, to step out for a moment, how does a national politician in the White, aiming for the White House, how does he avoid that, that sense of himself as a great man? This is not to say Coolidge was not confident. He said, I think I can swing it when he was asked if he could be president. But he was confident, Coolidge was confident in his sense of service and his ability to serve. And of course that's possible. People like humble people. Basically, think of in, in commerce, when you think of vendors for things you're going to buy, you want a company or an individual who under-promises and over-delivers. And that's the person to whom you return. Mm-hmm. And there are used car dealers who are like that, and we know which ones they are. That was Coolidge. It, he became popular because he was not a marketer. The nation had wearied of marketing, and of course, all the jingoism of war, World War One. So here was this guy who was kind of low key, and of course, the clever people of the magazines mocked him. Coolidge was referred to as the accident of an accident by Republicans who didn't like Harding because Harding became uh, the presidential candidate after a lot of struggle um, in the Chicago convention. And then, he, of course, he passed away tragically, so that's the second accident in that line. Intellectuals couldn't 
Dan Coolidge. Um, I believe it was Dorothy Parker who, when she heard Coolidge died, said, how could they tell? (laughs) But intellectuals are marketers, and they're awfully vain of their vocabularies (laughs) and their wits. And, And wit only takes you so far. That's a problem with journalism, too, right? You say, I'm so clever, but after a while it gets boring, right? So what? You're clever. You know, do you build institutions or do you just trash other people, right, and their institutions? That that question Coolidge asked early, I, I think you were, I thought you were going somewhere that you didn't go, but I want to mention it because it's a question about philosophy, too, and about virtue. Mm-hmm. Coolidge was definitely sanctimonious in the way uh, of an upright man or woman. And sometimes through sanctimony, which is a form of virtue signaling, you hurt yourself and your cause as well. So, right? Mm -hmm. That's a problem. What do I mean by that? Coolidge was so eager not to appear vain before his fellows and God that he sort of willfully erased record of his own administration. One good thing he did was said uh, signaled, and that's in this autobiography too, that he kind of didn't want federal money to maintain, say, a presidential library, right? Right. Because he thought that was pork. And his son John used to say pork, I'm told. They knew what pork was. They didn't like earmarks. Good. But he also, his friends got together and raised some money for him. And uh, what do your friends raise money for when you're leaving the presidency? They raise money to thank you, the president, right? Including Clarence Barron, the founder of Barron's Financial Magazine, or Andrew Mellon. Well-to-do men got together and raised $2 million. And Coolidge said, glad to have it. Thank you for this effort. We're going to give it to my wife's favorite charity, the Clark School for the Deaf. Hmm. Wonderful marital gesture, all husbands and wives must emulate, right? Gives an incredible gift to his wife, and he knew that she would probably live longer than he would. She was the first aerobic first lady, as far as I can tell. Grace was healthy, and Coolidge was sickly, and uh, she did, and she was the most important lady in the town, because she was the patroness of the Clark School for the Deaf, where she had learned to teach the deaf. Incredibly thoughtful marital gift. $2 million. We can reckon what that is today. However, the Coolidge data and papers are all scattered. He destroyed some because of his modesty. And I'm not clear he did the nation a service through such modesty, particularly because his principles and the way he advanced them were so valuable. So he he uh, hid his light under a bushel on purpose, and that was a kind of um, uh, a counterproductive modesty. So I, I think it's very interesting. You want to think, is what I am doing good or not? And at the Coolidge Foundation, we always struggle with this because if he wanted to be forgotten, we're not serving him by making him remembered. But he has to serve the American people and his ideas the American people need. Therefore, I'm indenturing Coolidge posthumously to this service, even though he was a shy guy, or so the argument. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. 
Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. He, he must have had some modest, however modestly expressed, some intention to disseminate his example by doing this memoir. I mean, you mentioned that it was in a way for kids, young Americans, to read. Was that, was that one of his ambitions here? Yes. Definitely. And he was quite vain um, in a good way of his writing. Uh, the painter Ercole Cartado, an Italian-American painted Coolidge, one of the good portraits, and he, Coolidge asked him about his craft, his mastery, and then Coolidge waved at a bunch of books on the shelf behind him and said, those are my paintings, his speeches. Hmm. Coolidge was a beautiful writer. There's a... Um, new book by a guy named Craig Furman, F-E-H-R-M-A-N, about, I, I believe it's called Author-in-Chief, about presidents as writer and, uh, writers, and Craig goes out of his way to praise Calvin. That probably comes from the church, too, I will say, because Coolidge uh, writes homiletic. He writes like a good sermon, short, not show-off, declarative sentences, more or less, a little bit of a, a playing with words. Did you notice in the sentence you read, he said the president shouldn't be a great man, but he also uses the adjective great elsewhere in the sentence. It's a great service, great service right. for the president <laughs> not to want to be great, etc. Sometimes you can hear him relishing the ambiguity or wordplay. He's a real English writer. Really gifted writer. Yeah. Well, we had we had Craig on the podcast last year. Oh, excellent. Uh, for the for that book, Craig from the the author in chief book. But you know the prose, it is it is so limpid and clear and direct. But you're right, there is there is there are moments of, of real stylistic subtlety in it. And one thing I wanted to mention was when he talks about his mother, I actually found those paragraphs. Pretty moving. He, he's, I'm going to quote a few lines here. How beautiful she was, and also a touch of mysticism and poetry in her nature, which made her love to gaze at the purple sunsets and watch the evening stars. I gather she, she died when he was 12, is that correct? But, but it seems her memory lives very much alive within him for the rest of his life. Well, yes, and he was a shy boy, in a small village, and he went out to the town meeting to sell apples and watched his father and grandfather speak. But she was also his refuge. And we've all had seen children or had children who stayed at home who didn't really want to go to summer camp all seven weeks and did better uh, playing by themselves in their room. I would imagine Coolidge was that kind of boy or working, you know. He was more of a stay-at-home contemplative kid, and she was his refuge, clearly. His sister was more outgoing. He says that he started to study the Constitution at age 13. He has a, a nice quotation in the book, quote, No other document devised by the hand of man ever brought so much progress and happiness to 
humanity. Now, Amity, may, may we require that every civics high school class open with that quotation? Can we do that? Absolutely. And we have a program at the Coolidge Foundation. We're just getting up for 13-year-olds. Really? On, on civics? Yes. On the, it's the naturalization test that new Americans have to take to become citizens. We're going to award eighth graders around that age who pass the test. We'll add a few Coolidge questions in because we're the Coolidge Foundation, but the preparation will all be transparent and online because you think about a child at that age uh, and why was he able to read the Constitution? Well, because it was well-written and short. I don't imagine he could have read the Constitution of the European Union, you know. Yeah. Had it been available in Plymouth Notch, Vermont in 1885 or so, right? Because it, it's too bureaucratic and unreadable. One thing about the U.S. Constitution is it is clear and short. And he made a wonderful speech at the sesquicentennial of the Declaration and with beautiful lines, he said about the Declaration, there is something that is exceedingly restful. Hmm. If all men are equal, that is final. And so he, he sort of channeled the framers and he understood them. He was born in 1872, so that's just a whole lot closer than we are to the founding of the country. He goes to Amherst College. As you were writing your biography, of Coolidge and covering his Amherst years, uh, what what stood out for you when you when you saw how that experience affected him? What, what was what was the most powerful impact you saw at, at Amherst? Remember, Coolidge went to several boarding schools before he went to Amherst, so he'd been away from home. Okay. Nonetheless, he had a hard time. There were a lot of rich boys at Amherst who had nice clothes, who came from, I don't know, oil families in New York, right? And they weren't nice to a boy from Plymouth. Coolidge was not poor. Uh, his family owned land, but he didn't have a lot of cash to buy the right suit, uh, you know, and so on. And he did care about clothes, so he was sort of socially on the edge. He was also a bit odd. So it was an incredible social challenge for him at this school, and uh, there were a lot of fraternities. Coolidge wanted to be in a fraternity. We know this because he wrote his father about it. I got to pay for me to be in a fraternity, Dad, and he wasn't tapped uh, until senior year. And he kind of like this other young fellow, Harlan Stone, and Harlan, out of conviction, would not join a fraternity, and that gave Coolidge cover. Oh, Harlan thinks fraternities are wrong, and Harlan is interesting. Harlan was a good debater. Well, then maybe not being a fraternity, being out is okay. And we know, of course, later that Harlan Stone went to the Supreme Court. Coolidge made him attorney general, so Coolidge... Uh, was very grateful to the friends he did make or the men he did admire at Amherst. And eventually Coolidge found himself, found his footing at this small college, serious college, rather snobby college, through the sport of debate. He wasn't a good athlete. He was very proud of the sports at Amherst, but he was a good debater, and that was his sport. And the other kids began to notice him. So if you go through the student newspaper, you don't find much about Calvin Coolidge. Everyone else's name seems to be there. When I wrote the 
biography of Calvin Coolidge, I looked in the library, which is not named after Coolidge, but rather about Robert Frost. What an error, but never mind, at Amherst. And uh, didn't find much, but eventually he was a fairly good speaker. They had rhetoric in the curriculum in Amherst, which we lack by and large. And uh, the other boy said, wow, he's interesting. Someone said when they discovered him by senior year that it was a new and different man. And he became friendly with a, was friendly with a fellow named Dwight Morrow, who was a, a luck child, someone everyone loved, who went uh, to law school and J.P. Morgan, and of course was a senator later and of course an advisor to Coolidge, ambassador to Mexico. And that is how uh, Anne Morrow Lindbergh married Charles Lindbergh because Coolidge's pal Dwight, ambassador to Mexico, hosted the aviator Charles Lindbergh who landed at Mexico City and fell in love with the Lin, uh, with the Morrow girls and married one of them. And so a lot of history comes out of that Amherst connection. Amherst is an interesting school. It was born of intense religious fervor. It was a break-off kind of from the Harvard culture, from Unitarianism, certainly. By the time Coolidge got there, it was less religious. But I will say it was steeped in religion compared to now. And I think in the autobiography or elsewhere, Coolidge says he didn't see how all those hours in chapel hurt. And if you look at his diary uh, and his letters to his father, rather, he, you see, dear dad, blah, 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 I must to chapel now. Chapel was part of their routine in Amherst and gave their lives more order than sometimes young people can find today. Yeah. Uh one of the things he raises after he leaves Amherst, he, he doesn't go to law school. He trains for the law outside in, in a law firm as, as a clerk, I guess. Uh, but he gets into local politics and he talks a great deal about sort of the very you know, basic machinery of local politics, of budgets, of different offices that he held so that you can see by the time he rose to higher positions, he had a thorough knowledge of how things, politics works in, in very low levels. And was this a key to his ability as president to do things like cut the budget, like be vice president under Harding, but he escaped all the scandals? They didn't, they didn't taint him at all. Was that local intricacy experience in, in government crucial to that later success? It seems to be. Today we sort of have an automatic contempt for the old and for the political. We like the idea of maverick outsider, but there's something to be said for the insider because he knows the ropes. In particular, Coolidge knew a lot about the law and administration. So he was a politician and a, and a, a government, you know, administrator. And he saw what is the budget for Northampton? What does Northampton need? It was Northampton, Massachusetts, where he started. The county where Amherst is is Hampshire County. And Northampton was called a city in those days and seemed to have a bigger future than it, it got. It was a wonderful place at the turn of the century. So there he was, you know, representing school issues, the beer breweries who knew 
prohibition was coming? What was going to happen to the German immigrants when beer became illegal? He saw all the trade-offs, and he, he did a lot of his politicking on foot in Northampton. There's pictures of him. I think there's one in this book, walking Northampton to call on people. He was a very effective local politician. You know, it was absolutely killing to be a statewide politician in those days because there weren't cars at first, right? So you're riding in a cart from one place to another. There wasn't television. There wasn't radio. But to be a county politician was an intense and gratifying work. And after a while, he began to understand that administration is important. As he wrote in a key speech called Have Faith, in Massachusetts, give administration a chance to catch up with legislation. The answer isn't always a new law, or he wrote his father slightly pompously. When his father was a state lawmaker in Vermont, in Montpelier, the young Coolidge, who had more government experience by then than his father wrote, it's better to kill a bad law than pass a good one. He liked to veto, and he really delivered for constituents. He under-promised and over-delivered. Were they particular favors? Yes, although we understood the need uh, on occasion to say no to lobbies and constituencies for the greater good very well, and did that even as a state lawmaker often. But he went out of his way to address to listen to the concerns of the voters. And I'll give you an example. His great golden benefactor was a man named Stern, Stern's department store of Boston, Amherst alum. And Stern's came to him about water plumbing, you know, in Amherst. Somehow, you know, putting in a plumbing system in this town. And Coolidge said no, but he said he'd think about it. And later he delivered that funding for whatever, or support for whatever it took to get indoor plumbing in Amherst and to help the college. And Stern saw that Coolidge under-promised and Mm over-delivered. And Stern became infatuated. There's no other word, because Stern was an emotional, colorful guy to... Stearns and Coolidge were a pair. Coolidge was dry and cold, and Stearns was flowery. Um, and they're a wonderful pair, and it was Stearns who so lovingly helped Coolidge to publish his first book of speeches, which is Have Faith in Massachusetts, a, a book of speeches. It's not just Massachusetts. It's, of course, Have Faith in State Government. Coolidge lived a Tocqueville life in the America before uh, all our progressive laws. So have faith in Massachusetts. It's a wonderful for anyone who wants to study uh, state government. And that, that was the culture. And, of course, he had some tough decisions. The Boston, He fired the Boston policemen when they illegally went on strike, and that's famous, and we can discuss that. But he did something else which he considered harder by his own report, which is he cut back branches of Massachusetts government when it grew too big. And that was really hard to do because he was basically hiring friends and then firing them. Who works in government? Patronage then is now people you knew or people who knew people you knew. And he was laying people off in great number when he cut back the government. And the governor personally did it. And he said it was, you know, kept him up all night for many nights, 
trying to figure out where to cut the state government. That gave him experience for Washington, though. Hmm. There is, as you say, much more to talk about in the book. I should add, we have other elements in, in the book. We have statements by some of the descendants in, in this new volume, I should say, of, of the memoirs by descendants of Calvin Coolidge. You've also collected some of his major speeches in it. The book is The Autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. Amity Schles, thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.